Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing chapter 32, Storm. And we are with Wintrow, who is in the slavehold, doing what he was doing last week as well, or last episode and last chapter. Cleaning up some of the slaves, trying to do his best to relieve some pain. Just walking around, bringing down the bucket of seawater and a rag. Right. And what's this is another time jump that is very Hob-like in that we don't really know the exact amount of time that has passed, but it has been multiple days. This is not right, right after. The slaves are used to him now. Yes. They're, they're used to him walking around, and he says that he can't get to every slave every day. There's too many, but he gets to as many as he can and goes to the ones that just keeps going on his rounds. Right. And at the start of this, he is working with a young slave girl who is injuring herself on the shackles around her legs. He has moved them up to put a cloth around the sores that have been created and asks if that feels better, but she doesn't respond. And as soon as the shackle is back and he has let go of her, she again continues to try to work out of the shackle. Yeah. And she's on the verge of crippling herself. Yes. He cri- says a day or more. All he had were seawater and rags, no herbs or oils, no real medicines or bandaging. And she was gradually scoring her own tendons. She seemed unable to stop herself from working against the fetter. Give it up, a voice from the darkness suggested sourly. She's crazy. She don't know what she's doing. And she's going to die before we get to Chalcid anyway. You washing her and bandaging her is the only is only going to make it take longer. Let her go if that's her only way out of here. Winter lifts up his candle and can't decides he can't tell who is the one speaking, but he moves on. It's really sad because it really paints the picture of how the slaves how desolate the slaves are. And yeah. they're not even feeling compassionate for each other. Really? They're, They're just, just Yeah, if if this is the way that she wants to go, let her do it. Yeah. And I I mean maybe that is a type of compassion. It's not fair to say that's not compassionate, but there isn't like a sense of oh, thank you for trying to help her, but you know, it's kind of misplaced. It's more of a you're doing more harm than good. What's the point? Yep. And it's just really sad. But Winter does move on and he mentions that in this part of the hold, he can't really stand up straight. And He's just kind of moving along with his candle and the, the slaves are shying away from that as if it's the sunlight coming down because it's in a dark hold for who knows how many days. Right. And he also mentions that they have even even more restriction on their movement because of how tightly they're chained together. And the only thing keeping them moving is the fact that Vivacia is there's kind of a storm on the horizon, so the waves are a little bit crazy right now. So they're, the movement of the ship itself is causing them to be in constant motion. Right. Most of the slaves were silent and impassive, all their strength invested in endurance. He saw a man half sitting up in his chains, blinking as he tried to meet Wintrow's eyes. Can I help you? He asked quietly. Do you have the key to one of these things? One man to the side of him answered sarcastically, while another one demanded, How come you get to move about? So that I can keep you alive, Wintrow answered evasively. 
He was a coward. He feared that if they knew he was the captain's son, they'd try to kill him. I have a bucket of seawater and rags if you want to wash yourself. Give me the rag, the first man commanded him gruffly. Wintrow sopped it in water and passed it to him. Wintrow had expected him to wipe his face and hands. So many slaves seemed to take comfort from that bare ritual of cleanliness. Instead, he shifted as far as he could to put the rag against the bared shoulder of an inert man next to him. Here you go, rat bait, he said almost jokingly. He sponged tenderly at a raw and swollen lump on the man's shoulder. The man made no response. Rat bait got bitten hard a few nights ago. Caught the rat and we shared it. But he ain't been feeling well since. His eyes met Wintrow's for a glancing moment. Think you could get him moved out of here, he asked in a more genteel tone. If he's got to die in chains, at least let him die in the light and on air on deck. It's night right now, Wintrow heard himself say. Foolish words. Is it? the man asked in wonder. Still, the cool air. I'll ask, Wintrow said uncomfortably, but he wasn't sure he truly would. And he remarks that the crew pretty much leaves Wintrow to himself. He eats a part of them, he sleeps a part of them, and some of the men he had known earlier in the voyage would watch him sometimes, their faces a mixture of pity and disgust at what he had become. But the newer hands picked up in Jamelia treated him as they would any slave. And he says no, the less attention he got from the crew, the simpler his life was. I think it's really important to note that Wintrow is trying to be compassionate, but has clearly learned more about what the dangers are of just blindly trusting that everybody is trying to do the right thing. Yeah. He is trepidatious of this man, and ultimately his first instinct is, number one, it was foolish to tell the man that it was night, and number two, that it is not a good idea to actually ask to get the other man aboard deck. And I think that's really interesting because that is kind of a change in him. Ultimately, it doesn't stand against the test of time, but <laughs> there... Yeah, I think this change is more so like his despondence. Yes, he's more wary, and that reflects, like you said, in the, I won't tell them who I am because I'm worried they might kill me, and things like that. But I think he's just so alone and isolated. He's just like, well, this is all I can do. Right. Better to remain apart from everything and not get mixed up in anything. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. But there is a change to intro. Yes. I think it's interesting that in this moment, he feels like something is wrong and that they're not just asking something simple. And there's like something shady about these characters. And then that's ultimately put aside later. Right. And I thought I'd point that out here. Definitely. Definitely. But also I think it's really sad to know just how much life has changed for Wintrow. It's not even just that his father has marked him as a slave for the rest of his life. These new hands that are on deck that weren't there for the whole journey are kicking him and calling him smelly and acting like he isn't even a human being around them. And this is the life that Kyle has left his child to endure. This is what the tattoos on his face mean that if he's on the ship for the rest of his life, there will be people on board who treat him as less than human. And I think that's ultimately horrible. That's not a good feeling, I'm sure. And part of why I think Wintrow is so down in the dumps. Yeah, he's kind of chosen to remain isolated because of that treatment. And he says the trips to the deck seem like 
a trip to a wondrous foreign world. And he says he could have stayed above deck, he could have insinuated himself back into the routine as ship's boy, but he did not. Having been below decks, he could not forget or ignore what was there. So each day he rose as the sun went down, filled his bucket, and got his washed out rags, and went down into the slave holds. So he's only awake during the night to avoid a lot of the crew sleeping during the day, and then going down to the slave holds at night to offer them small comfort of washing with seawater. He cleaned sores they could not reach, and he did not get to every slave every day. There were far too many for that. But he did what he could, and when he curled up to sleep by day, he slept deeply. I think it's also important that he recognizes that salt water probably isn't the best. Yeah, he, yeah, he says that. And it, he does know, he's like, you know, it's better than nothing, though. And at least I'm helping these people. And the people are seeming to take some sort of comfort in the fact that they're being allowed to be clean, that they're allowed to have this small change to the holding. And ultimately, I think gives them a little bit more hope and gives them the chance to start the rebellion spoiler alert that's coming along. But I think it's really important that Wintrow saw the, hor- the horrifics of what is going on, knew that he could go without continuing to see that and decided, you know what? I can't ignore that knowing that it's there and I will do whatever I can to make sure that they're at least comfortable while they're here. Right. He touches the man who got bit, and his skin is warm, so Wintrow does think he has a fever. And the first man asks to wet the rag once again. And Wintrow ponders on his accent because he hears something familiar in it. He passes the rag over again, and Wintrow catches on to the accent after the man thanks him, saying, You come from Morrow, don't you? Near Kelpatin Monastery. The man smiled oddly as if Wintrow's words both warmed and pained him. Yes, he said quietly, yes I do. In a lower voice he amended it to, I did, before I was sent to Jamalia. Wintrow exclaims that yeah, I was there too, that's where I studied, and they reminisce a little bit until the man says, Saw, save me. Are you a demon come to torment me, or a messenger spirit? Neither, Wintrow said. He suddenly felt ashamed. I'm only a boy with a bucket of water and a rag. Not a priest of Saw? Not any longer. The road to the priesthood may wander, but once upon it, no man leaves it. The slave's voice had taken on a teacher teaching cadence, and Wintrow knew he heard ancient scripture. But I have been taken away from the priesthood. No man can be taken away. No man can leave it. All lives lead towards Saw. All are called to a priesthood. Some moments later, Wintrow realized he was sitting very still in the dark, breathing. His mind had followed the man's words, questioning, wondering. All men called to a priesthood, even Torg, even Kyle Haven. Not all calls were heeded, not all doors were opened. And the man says to him, Go, priest of Saw, work the small mercies you can. Plead for us, beg comfort for us. And when you have the chance to do more, Saw will give you the courage. I know he will. So we have this man who is from the area that Wintrow was studying to be a priest as well, who claims to be a priest as well, and I believe was a priest at one point. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to see this interaction. And I think this is the only reason that Wintrow forgoes his earlier trepidation, that there's this sense of, well, he's from a place that I'm familiar with. He's from the place that I think of as home. He's trustworthy. He's older than me. He obviously knows Saw's teaching. He's making me think critically again, which Wintrow loves to do. And probably is reminiscent of that. And so all of these things, these things, especially on top of the fact that he is so isolated and he is getting this horrible treatment, it really opens the door for this man to be able to kind of worm his way into Wintrow's good side, if you will. I don't even think he's like purposely trying to worm his way in really, but it's just, it's just what happens, right? It's, It's really hard because on the one hand, I am all for the slaves trying to get out of their situation and yeah. the mutiny and like, I get it. But on the other hand, he's taking advantage of a, he, of a confused young boy. Yeah. And that's, I think where I'm like, obviously morality is all gray at this point. Yes. There is no clean way to do this, but I just I, don't like the character, I guess. Yeah. Sa-adar. Yeah. I think something about him is off and I it just feels really manipulative and yucky and it doesn't matter that he's in the right or that I agree that he shouldn't be a slave and that like, I understand why he would want to do anything to get out. I think trying to use a God as your buffer for an excuse to making bad, I don't want to say bad choices, but violent decisions. Yeah. Immoral decisions, violent decisions. I think that isn't okay. And he should just be more honest about what it is that he's doing. This isn't for Saw, this is for himself. And that's fine. It just, the way that he pretends that it is a higher calling right. bothers me, I think. We learn a little bit more about him because Wintrow asks, you were a priest too. And the man replies, I am a priest. One who would not sway to false doctrine. No man is born to be a slave. That, I believe, is what Saw would never permit. Do you believe that? Of course. The man observes, They bring us food and water but once a day. Other than that, and you, no one comes near us. If I had anything metal, I could work at these chains. It need not be a tool that would be missed. Any metal thing, anything metal you could find in any moment, you are unwatched. But even if you were out of your chains, what could you do, one man against so many? If I can sever the long chain, many of us could move. But what would you do? Wintrow asked in a sort of horror. I don't know. I'd trust to Saw. He brought you to me, didn't he? He seemed to hear the boy's hesitation. Don't think about it. Don't plan it. Don't worry. Saw will put opportunity in your path, and you will see it and act. He paused. I only ask that you beg that Kilo here be allowed to die on deck, if you dare. I dare, Wintrow heard himself reply. He would dare. He would ask. What could they do to him for asking? Nothing worse than they'd already done. His courage, he thought wonderingly. He'd found his courage again. I have to go, but I will come back. I know you will, the other man replied. So I just want to take a second. If this guy was a priest at the priest monastery where Wintrow was, why has Wintrow never seen him before? Wintrow was only there for five years, and this man is probably been enslaved for a while but he was also went to Jamalia so I, I don't know 
Like there, he was. He might have been out on one of the pilgrimages that Wintrow said that the priests do, and maybe just enslaved there. I guess, yeah, because that was the thing is if they're from the same place and if that's the monastery he learned at, it seems odd that him denying that slaves are not made by Saw willingly is the thing that got him put into slavery from that monastery where I think Barandal would agree. I think there are a lot of people in that monastery who would agree. Yeah, but if he moved to Jamalia and then said those things. I guess, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like we learn more about Sa'adar's history in the next book, but I couldn't find it anywhere on any of the wikis or anything like that. So I, I really don't remember. Mm. If some reader does remember and lets us know, I don't know if he has like a violent past or what, if, if, if it's even revealed what got him enslaved in the first place. All I know is that I think Kenneth ends up killing him uh, after he brings him to Key Island to stay with his mom on that island and he refuses. Sadar refuses. So kind of just kills him. Because he's becoming a problem, I think, for in in a problem in Kenneth's eyes to like lead the slaves or whatever. Right. Yeah. No. I def yeah, there's definitely something wrong with I like already have a bad feeling about him. I've read this series before. I f- I'm gonna trust that gut instinct and say he's not a great guy. And I that- think he uses, like you said, Sa as like a cudgel for Whatever he does. It's like, this is Saw's will. Right. Very white of him. The whites of him. Not white people, but (laughs) (laughs) capital W whites. Very like Claris, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the school. It's very Claris of him to say, this is the path. Okay, like you don't have any way to influence that, sure. Right. It's, I don't know. Don't love it. We shift perspectives to Gantry, who... Uh, is up on the foredeck because Vivacia has called for him. And she says, something's wrong. Something is very wrong. Gantry is wearily demanding, like, what? You know, is it the serpents again? I've tried to drive them off. Rocks don't do much. I can't make them go away. You'll just have to ignore them. And she latches onto that and says, they whisper to me. She confided uneasily. The serpents talk to you? No, not all of them, but the white one. Without words, without sound, he whispers to me and he urges unspeakable things. Gantry felt a terrible urge to laugh. Unspeakable things uttered without words. He pushed it away from himself. It wasn't funny, not really. Sometimes it seemed to him that nothing had ever really been funny in his whole life. I can't do anything about them, he said. I've tried and tried. I know. I know. I have to deal with it myself. I can. I shall. But tonight, it's not the serpents. It's something else. What? He asked patiently. She was mad. He was almost sure of it. Mad and he had helped to make her that way. Sometimes he thought he should just ignore her when she spoke, as if she were one of the slaves begging him for simple mercy. At other times, he thought he had a duty to listen to her ramblings and groundless fears, because what he had come to call madness was her inability to ignore the contained misery caged within her holds. He had helped to put that misery there. He had installed the chains. He had brought out the slaves. With his own hands, he had fettered men and women in the dark below the decks he trod. He could smell the stench of their entrapment and hear their cries. Perhaps he was the one who was truly mad, for a key hung at his belt, and he did nothing. 
So Vivesha is here trying to warn him of something, something that she can't really say, something that's nameless to her, but a feeling. And he just doesn't know what he can do anymore. And she doesn't really know what to do either. She's just trying to warn somebody because she's shut herself off from Wintro, from anybody really. And Gantry is just like, well, she's mad because she's dealing with all this misery. But I think maybe I'm just calling her mad because I'm trying to avoid the decisions that I made. And he's dealing with his own guilt about this situation of the slaves. Yeah, it's really interesting because number one, we get the information that basically Vivacia isn't really talking to Wintro still. That's the context clues that we get that she's talking to Gantry before she's talking to Wintro about this, which goes to kind of show the depth of the hurt that she's feeling with Wintro. And I think it shows that their reputation has been hurt right. pretty bad. Like she's not even going to Wintro with this anymore. It's all Gantry. But even in that, it's not even about the serpents at this point, which she says, talk to her, which is kind of crazy to know that they're doing and interesting that she can hear them yeah. and that they're able to communicate with her in some way. But then it's just the white one too, though. The one that's asking for food. That's what she says. Like, yeah, it's just the serpents talk to you. No, not all of them, but the white one. Without words, without sound, he whispers to me and he urges unspeakable things. But the, I thought that was um, Malkin. No, Malkin is not. The, the white one is the one that was driving Kyle to like throw a winter overboard. And right. Malkin you're right, you're right. And said that he petitions her for food that she finds undesirable. So I feel like she hears him saying like, hey, you're she who remembers. I'm petitioning you to throw overboard all of these people to yes. feed me. Throw me food. Yeah. Throw me the people. That's okay. Yeah. I thought Malkin was white. So that's why I was thinking mm. this was Malkin. Um, but I forgot that it is not Malkin. It's the yeah. other serpent. Um, but I think it's also interesting because she has this fear and it's something she doesn't know how to name it. She doesn't know what it is. It's just something big and dark and scary that's coming. And we know because we're rereaders that this is Kenneth's ship. And so I'm wondering, is she able to sense Kenneth's ship watching them? Or is this a premonition again? I feel like it's one of those like premonition things. Just has a bad feeling about this journey, a bad feeling about tonight. You know, something's wrong. Something's going on. Yeah. Okay. But do you think that this is a skill that she has because she is? We've she talked about it before. I just don't know. I mean, it feels like it must have something to do with that, but I just don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just really interesting that she is once again, correct in her ill feeling. Yeah. So she knows that there's something dangerous that's happening. And Gantry is like, I really don't know what she's trying to say. You know, I'll just try to placate her placate. Yeah. And she says, it's just the storm. No need to be worried about it. It's not going to bother you. And she's like, no, I'd welcome the storm. It's something else. And Gantry's like, I don't know what to do for you. And then he asks his usual question. Do you want me to find Wintrow and bring him to you? No, no, leave him where he is. She sounded distracted when she spoke of him as if the topic pained her and she wished to get away from it. Well, if you think of anything I can do for you, you let me know. He started to turn away from her. 
Gantry, Gantry, wait. Yes, what is it? I told you to get on, on another ship. You remember that, don't you? That I told you to get on another ship. I remember it. I remember it. And again, he turns to go, and all of a sudden, a gaunt figure is in front of him in rags, and it's Wintrow. Right. I do want to take a pause for a second because I want to talk about Gantry here a little bit. We focused a little bit more on Vivacia because this is a lot of big information, but I do feel for Gantry in this moment. He did not realize how bad things would be. He did not realize how much he couldn't trust Kyle and how horrible of a person Kyle was, which makes sense because he's not a woman. So Kyle has probably (laughs) always treated him with respect. There's no reason for him to have seen Kyle, except for when he was dealing with Althea, which I expect that Gantry has similar views on women in their place. So probably wasn't that bothered about Althea. Also, he never saw Althea do anything useful. He just thought she was the brat that Kyle made her out to be because she didn't really help that image while she was on board with them. Right. So, He's, it, it also goes to show really, really quickly. It yeah. goes to show just a little aside about Kyle that I truly think this voyage is an outlier for him. That he's usually not this angry and violent and things like that because Gantry's moving away from him during this voyage while he's acting like this. So he must be a more even tempered captain when he's not dealing with these things that are happening. Maybe he's not more even tempered. Maybe it just usually doesn't go as out of control. Yeah, maybe. Either way, that was just an aside. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, I think I do feel for Gantry. He also is having his morals questioned and he's not strong enough to say, you know, I won't do this and I'm going to free the slaves. He just mentions that he's maybe the crazy one because he has the key and isn't doing anything to help. But I think it's also interesting to know that he feels like Vivacia has gone insane. He feels like something is wrong with the ship and it's his fault. And that's why he keeps trying to help her. It's because he feels like he did this to her and he feels bad. Yeah. And I think that does speak to his character that there is remorse here. It's not like he's, it's not Torg. He's not relishing (laughs) in the misery of everyone on board. Vivacia does say that Torg is pretty much alone in that. Yeah. And I don't know. I just find it really interesting that, Gantry really, he's not the best person. I don't think he's like a top tier man, but he is he's trying. He's a decent person, yeah. He's, he's not as, he's not perfect and that's normal. And yeah, he's a human. Yeah. You know? And I do feel bad for him for his fate that is fastly approaching. And he sees Wintrow in front of him and says, well, thinks that he didn't like to see Wintrow at any time, let alone in the dark alone. The boy himself had become an accusation to him, a living reminder of all Gantry chose to ignore. He demands, what do you want? And the boy spoke simply, basically making the plea like, there's a man, he's sick below, can he come out on deck and die there? And Wintrow, Gantry's offering all sorts of excuses like, well, I I can't really go down down there by myself, I can't watch a slave on deck. Wintrow's offering him counterpoints like, I can watch him, it's fine. His fever is so high that he's just going to lie there until he dies. And Gantry gets a little bit more concerned about that, saying, fever? He's one of the map faces then. No, he's in the forward hold. How'd he get fever? We've only had a fever among the map faces before this. He spoke angrily as if it were Wintrow's fault. A rat bit him. The man chained to him thinks that's what started it. 
Perhaps we should remove him from the others just in case. Gantry snorted. You planned my fears to get me to do what you want. Can you give me a real reason why we should not bring the poor wretch onto the deck to die? I don't have the men to move him just now. The seas are heavy. A storm is brewing. I want my full watch on deck in case I need them. We have a tricky bit of channel coming up, and when a storm breaks here, a man has to be ready. Eventually, Vivacious steps in and pleads with Gantry, like, please, bring him up on deck. You said, can you do anything for me? You can do this. So I think what's really interesting in that is Vivacia has to kind of know what the slaves are planning, right? Maybe, but she's holding herself separate from all that, so I doubt she's trying to delve into their minds too closely. And when she's not fully connected to them and when she's holding herself apart, it seems like she can only feel what they're doing. And maybe mm-hmm. like the general emotions from everybody. Because at the end of last chapter, she she can still feel Wintro, even though she shut him out. Right. But she can just sense that he's like moving down the slave hold and going from slave to slave. So I think it's more of just general movement and feel them generally. And she would have to reach out. I guess I was thinking more of the fact that like Paragon could hear the conversation clearly that Althea and Brashen were having. And so I was wondering if then she can just hear what they're talking about. I'm sure this isn't the first time they've talked about trying to do a mutiny. That's fair. Yeah. So I like wonder if Vivation knows what she's sending Gantry into, especially with the cryptic. Do you remember that I told you to leave this boat? Maybe. And maybe she doesn't know that they're going to kill him, but I feel. Maybe she gets know. more nuance from the conversation than Wintro does. Yeah. Overhearing that. Yeah, it's definitely possible. I don't know. It's very weird, but it would, I mean, I guess maybe she kind of wants them to be free because that would relieve some of her suffering. I don't know. It's very yeah. hard to tell what's going on, but it is also interesting because we learned that the map faces actually were sick. If you remember when they were first brought on board, Kyle said that he didn't believe that they were sick because they were Because Torg was saying that they were faking. Yeah. Yeah. Torg said they were faking and that they're just trying to get their way and that you can't believe them. And it turns out they were actually sick. So I think that's a really interesting update that, which who would have thought shocked Pikachu face. We all know, we all knew that they were actually sick, but now we know that it was pretty bad and Torg has no idea what he's talking about. And now it may be spreading, but I think ultimately it's really interesting to see this interaction where Gantry is really feeling the guilt at this moment. It's like yeah. peaked peak guilt. He has all these excuses, which to be fair, the last one that he gives where there is a storm coming on, I need people on deck. I can't just be letting this happen. I think that's ultimately a good good enough reason. Yeah, definitely. But he wants to appease Vivacia in any way possible, especially <laughs> with this storm coming up. Exactly. He doesn't want her dragging anchor or anything. He wants her to sail as best as possible. So if this was a small bit of mercy, you know, that he can offer, maybe he can do that. But in his mind, he's thinking through this. He's like, I can't say why I didn't want to give in to do this task. A simple bit of mercy he could offer, but he wanted to hold it back. Why? because of this small act of taking pity on a dying man was the right thing to do, then he pushed the thought away from him. So it's, he's sitting here thinking like, 
if I can give a simple small act of mercy to a dying man, why can't I extend that to everyone in the hold? And he's desperately trying to hold himself back fully from feeling all of these terrible things. He knows it's wrong. Deep down, he knows it's wrong. Not even that deep down. Yeah. And he feels guilty about it. So he doesn't want to put himself in that mindset that they're humans because that would just release the floodgates in himself. Yeah. And once you start giving some little mercies, where does it end? Because now you have admitted that you, they deserve it. They deserve to get some sort of mercy. And I think that's also the fear because he isn't captain, even though he basically has to act like captain because Kyle is kind of inept. It seems (laughs) considering Gantry takes hold of every situation and makes it better. (laughs) he still isn't captain and so he can get in trouble and he needs the ship's ticket to be able to go to the next place he says uh, it wasn't his place to decide that all of it was wrong even if he faced that thought even if he said aloud this is wrong what could one man do about it so vivacia ultimately convinces him that this is the one thing that you can do for me you can let this man come up and Gantry warns them, saying, if the decks get any heavier, or the seas get any heavier, we'll be taking water over the deck. Wintrust says, I don't think it'll matter matter to him. And Gantry says, okay, I can't give you my keys, but I will go down and do it myself. Let's be quick about it and get it over with. Comfrey takes the uh, takes the wheel, um, or takes you know charge of the deck for now, and they go under deck. And he does make the comment that if there's a fever, he'd like to see it himself. Right. Um, I do think that the sentiment of what could one man saying this is wrong really do is really interesting because it is the conundrum, the like moral conundrum of, well, does it really matter if me alone doesn't change anything? But I think it does. It starts the wheel, right? Somebody has to be the first one to speak up and then you'll get more traction. More people say this isn't right and you can stop it. And obviously that's wishful thinking, but I do think even when it's hard, you have to be the one to step up. You have to say this isn't right because otherwise like this, everybody sits there thinking we don't like this, but what would one person difference make? Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing to see here that that is what's holding Gantry back is the feeling that it's just me against everyone else. And what could I possibly do? So we switch over to Wintrow's point of view, once again, leading Gantry down here and he's silent because he can't think of anything else to say to the man. He was painfully conscious of the differences between them. Now Gantry, his father's right hand and trusted advisor was as far as could be from Wintrow, the slave and disgraced son as he made his way into the crowded forward hold, he felt as if he'd let a stranger into his private nightmare. They have a lantern now that Wintrow is holding. Instead of the candle, it's a much bigger brightness that reveals a lot more of the horror within. Wintrow is breathing shallowly because, shallowly because he has learned to do that, while Gantry he hears coughing and even gagging a couple times because of the smell. But as they get closer to the dying man, they had to hunch over. The slaves were packed so tightly it was hard to avoid stepping on them. They shifted restlessly in the lantern light and muttered quietly to one another at the sight of Gantry's lantern. Wintrow leads him here and says, Here he is, 
This is Gantry, the mate. He's letting me take your friend above deck. The priest slave sat up, blinking in Gantry's lantern light. Sa's mercy upon you, he greeted him quietly. I am Sa Adar. Gantry said nothing to either the introduction or the slave's claim of priesthood. The mate seemed, Wintrow thought, uncomfortable at the idea of being introduced to a slave. So this is once again Gantry's inner dilemma, right? He doesn't want to humanize these people at all because of that guilt that we were talking about. What can one man do? Right. And Wintrow here just is like, well, this man is as far from me as can be. He's uncomfortable at being around slaves. Right. And I think because Wintrow can't read his mind the way we can, it's really easy to get that confused. Just not be able to understand the nuance of that is a a protective barrier that he's giving to himself. He's building that wall up around him to make sure that he doesn't have to think too hard about the humans whose lives he's changing forever. Right. Well, Gantry confirms that the slave does have fever. He struggles with the lock because it's pretty stiff and unlocks it finally, telling Wintrow to slide that chain out so he can get this man out of that main long chain and then lock it back up tight once again. Says quickly now, I don't like the way the Vivacia is taking these waves. So we know the storm is coming on stronger as well now. So Wintrow crawls down the row of slaves, lantern in hand, rattling the running chain through each ring until he reached the dying man. He freed him. One moment before you take him, the priest slave begged. He leaned over to touch his friend's brow. Saw bless you, his instrument. Peace take you. Then quick as a snake, Sa'adar snatched up the lantern and threw it. His force was savage, his aim unerring. Wintrow clearly saw Gantry's eyes dilate in horror, just as the heavy metal lantern struck him full in the brow. The glass chimney broke with the impact, and Gantry went down with a groan. The lantern landed beside him, rolling as the ship was rolling now. Oil trailed from it in a crooked track. The flame had not gone out. Get the lantern, the slave barked at Wintrow as he snatched the chain from his lax grip. Quickly now, before there's a fire. Wintrow understands that the fire is the most important thing and quickly goes over to try to snuff that and right the lantern. So there's, uh, there's that moment right there. One moment before you take him, saw bless you, his instrument, peace take you. Because saw Adar in his mind is like, saw brought this moment to me. You, the feverish slave who is going to die, peace be with you because saw made this happen. You are the reason that we are potentially going to get free now. And he's just using that benediction, that saw, that praising saw as like, well, this is this is my moment to act. This is Saw's plan. Mm-hmm. Saw's plan. <laughs> Saw's plan. <laughs> He's definitely trying to excuse himself from the misfortune that is about to fall everyone. Obviously, if Saw didn't want it to happen, he wouldn't have put him next to the slave that had a fever so that he could convince the boy to get them free. And in that decides that Gantry has to die. That's what Saw wanted. And I feel really bad because Gantry really had no time to see this coming. There's no oh no yeah. preparation. There's no way for him to have even protected himself. And that is made even more clear as Wintrow has turned his back to everyone to right the lantern, make sure there's not a fire on board the ship. And he notices that Saw Adar and several other of the now loosened 
slaves are putting a chain around the neck of Gantry. They are trying well, to kill him. They're fastening their hands around their neck and then slam his head down on one of the fetters. Right. So, yeah, they do kill him. And, and Wintrow cuts his foot and that cry of pain turns to horror as he witnesses that and knows that Gantry has died. And this really kind of shocks him into, I, I guess, complacency, but also just this state of being outside of himself. He watched Gantry die, someone who he doesn't think is a bad person, which he says. He says, no, don't hurt him. He is not as bad. He's not that bad. He's a good right. person. And Sa'adar says he can't be that good. He's a slaver, you know. Yeah. Wintrow says he wanted no part of Gantry's death to be his. I know that's that's something that we were talking about before with Wintrow wanting to be wanting to not make a decision on whether he wanted Kyle to buy him from his slavery or just to go to slavery, you know? Right. Like it's just that indecision and please take everything out of my hands. I don't want to make the choice. Right. Like the consequences can't be my own. Mm-hmm. And it's really heartbreaking because in this instant, it costs somebody a life. And I think it's really important to note that these slaves don't know that this is the first slave voyage that this crew has taken. Right. You know, they don't know that these people didn't realize how bad it was because ultimately these people are still going to sell them into slavery no matter how bad it was. And even though it's only the first time, it's it's not clear to the slavers how that makes them any different. Right. And I think as readers, we've grown attached to these people. We've grown attached to the crew because we know that they weren't ready for this. They didn't realize how bad it is, but ultimately they're still participating in this. Mm -hmm. And Saadar brings that to Wintrow's attention with his, you know, his rhetorical questions saying, you cannot say he was a good man to countenance what went on aboard this ship. And cruel things have to be done to undo worse cruelty, he said quietly. It was no saying of Saws that Wintrow had ever heard. His eyes came back to Wintrow's. Think on it, he bade him. Would you have refastened the chains that held us, you with a tattoo of your own down your face? He did not wait for a reply. Wintrow was guiltily relieved at that, for he had no answer to the question. If by refastening the chain he could have saved Gantry's life, would he have done it? If by refastening the chain he condemned all these men to a life of slavery, would he have done it? There were no answers to the questions. He stared down at Gantry's still face. He suspected the mate had not known the answer to such questions either. And that is pretty much an unanswerable question, right? Mm -hmm. it's it's horrible to contemplate, especially for a 14-year-old boy and everything that he's faced. So he keeps himself apart, and the slave rebellion is in full force around him, regardless of what he does now. Right. He watches as the priest tells everyone to raid the pockets for the keys to the fetter, which is not in his pocket. He only had the one key and then a couple personal items on him. And he's still quiet as they shuffle past and spit on his body. And and then they uh, unlock people in that area and then tell everyone, you need to stay quiet. We're not ready. We're going to go with the light and unlock other people. You just need to wait here and be ready and pray 
like, I know it's going to be scary, but you have to stay here quietly so that we can wait until we're all ready to take a hold of the ship. And yes. Wintro just goes along. He's now the lantern holder. Yeah. And it's again, another instance, like you said, where he's not making choice. He's trying to think that he's not making choices. He's just being led along by the flow of what's going on. But the thing is, is that by not speaking up for them spitting on gantry by continuing to work with them down the line as he holds the light for them. He is making a choice and that's the choice to be on their side. And Saadar, meanwhile, is just wielding Saw like a club saying, come on, boy, we've Saw's work to do, which yes, it probably is Saw's work to free slaves, but he just uses it so often as like, a justification. Right. Well, he also tried to say that it was Saw's will that you right a wrong with a worse wrong. So clearly this is... Well, cruel things have to be done to undo worse cruelty. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's He's definitely just kind of making it up as he goes. <laughs> to Wintrow, he said, lead on, hold by hold. We have to free them all and then to take the crew that by surprise. It's the only chance we have. And the first pattering of hard rain is heard above. So within and without, the long brewing storm overtook the ship. And we move on towards Kennet afterwards. So yeah, this is uh, the start of a mutiny, of a rebellion, of a rising, uprising. Right. And poor Wintrow is in the middle of it. But we go from that to Kennet, who is also in this storm as he watches from afar Vivacia. And the first line we hear is, I don't care about the weather, I want the ship. Sorcor's just agreeing, like, aye, sir. He takes a breath to say something else and then changes his mind. And we have to remember throughout this whole chapter, Sorcor and the next one, Sorcor is operating under the assumption that Kennet is dying and Kennet's dying wish is to just stand on a live ship. Right. So Sorcor is like, Yes, I will do everything in my power to do this for you, Captain. That's why he's holding back and you know, against his well wishes, things like that. Right. And as we see, as we go on from this chapter, Kenneth isn't looking good. So No, it, he actually is dying. <laughs> yeah, he, he like it's not that he seems to be. He actually is dying. There is a fever taking hold of him. He is not doing well. He's in a lot of pain and he's trying to pretend like it's fine. He's kind of gripping onto the sides and he speaks without looking away from the ship in the distance saying, I have a feeling about this one. I think she's ours for the taking. The bow of the Marietta bits deeper into an oncoming wave and sprays flying up everywhere, drenching them all. His crutch goes off, flying away. And Kenneth is trying hard to keep from falling. He's just clinging everywhere, obviously in pain. He also mentions that the icy water feels good to his hot-tempered body. Right, yeah. So he is racked with fever at the moment. He doubts the man Sorkor hears him because he's like, you know, trim her up a bit, keep her in better shape because Sorkor has already left his side and was shouting orders to deckhands. So he's going to go up to take the helm and the wheel. Let me take you back to the cabin, the ever-present Horace said from behind his shoulder. He had just been about to tell her to do that. Now, of course, he could not. He'd have to wait until she believed it was his own idea, or until he could think of a good reason why he had to go there. Damn her. 
His good leg was beginning to tire, and the bad one just dangled there, a hot, heavy weight of pain. Retrieve my stick, he ordered her, and it pleased him to see her chase it across a wave-washed deck. At the same time, he noted that she definitely had her sea legs now. There was nothing clumsy about her. Had she been a man, he'd have said she had the makings of a good soldier or a sailor. So we get some classic Kennet again here. The uh, I I almost want to say backhanded compliment, but it's like a backhanded insult <laughs> where it's a complete insult with like a slight compliment at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very odd. He's definitely not doing well he is correct when he says that he has a feeling that this is his ship because they are ultimately successful so i think that's really interesting that even in this moment where he's racked with fever and maybe that's just kennett being kennett and trying to manifest the reality into being by saying it yeah but he is right and i don't know that we've heard him say that about any other ship before now so i found that really interesting that even in this moment his luck is prevailing And he can kind of feel it almost. And then there is Etta who is trying to do its best, trying to help him as best she can. And he just can't accept that help. He wants to do everything on his own. She can't have the upper hand in any way. Right. And she is getting better on board ship. She has the making of a good sailor if she were a man, but we're going to let go of that part. (laughs) I I just find it very interesting to see how much has changed over the last few days of this voyage. So Kenneth is assessing the situation. The small squall that seemed to be there is turning out into a large storm. He's viewing the situation, talking about Hosser Channel and Crooked Island, and he knows that with a storm especially, the current is going to be super swift, and the safe passage is around the east side of Crooked Island ahead of them. To the west of the island was how they would have to go to catch it, because they'd use both the storm and the current to race ahead of the live ship and cut her off. It would be tricky, and no mistake there. He wasn't sure they'd make it. Well, he doubted that he had longed to live anyway. He might as well die on his own deck if he couldn't do it on the deck of a live ship. Sorkor had taken the wheel himself, and Kennet could tell it by the way that Marietta suddenly seemed to relish each challenging wave. So we get a little hint that Sorkor is an excellent sailor as well as a a good first mate. And we get a hint that Kennet is connected to live ships in some way. He wants to die. Well, I guess maybe not, but he wants to die on the deck of a live ship. He wants to be live on forever. We can see that hint as rereaders, but Mm -hmm. I think if you're reading through it the first time, you could just see it as like his deep desire and his wish true yeah but no as rereaders it's definitely a big hint of like he wants to live on forever this isn't just about getting to the ship it's about being able to be absorbed and be part of the ship forever and he knows he's not doing well yeah and yeah the fact that he is so reckless with everyone else's lives because what does it matter if he's dying anyway true their lives don't matter so again heartless Kenneth with no care for anyone <laughs> So he's staring at the vivacia this whole time, and for the space of three waves he could not see her. Then he spotted the live ship at the same time he heard her distant scream. She was taking the storm badly. Her untended sails pushed her awkwardly against each wave. As Kennet watched in horror, she slid down through a trough of a wave, disappeared, and then a moment later wallowed into view again. 
His straining eyes could pick out figures of men dashing about her dimly lit decks. Lots of men, but no one seemed to be doing anything to save her. He gave a groan of despair. To get this close to capturing a live ship, only to see her go down right before his eyes because of her own crew's incompetency. It was too bitter to bear. So now we see a little bit of a situation from Kenneth's point of view. The mutiny is in full swing. None of the sailors can do anything because they're fighting. Right. And getting killed. And it's really interesting because this feels like the worst time to start a mutiny. (laughs) Because if anything goes wrong, you're all dead. Right. But I guess... Sadar said, like, let's hope the storm keeps them distracted so we have better chances. And I guess, I mean, if there wasn't a storm, there'd be it'd be easier for the stronger men to fight back. But in in terms of being a slave, though, that's probably a better. The, they'd probably rather take their chances. Yeah, being I suppose free, they're dead either. Trying way. to sail, yeah, rather than being enslaved. So, you know, their choice. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good point. So he yells at Sorkor. Obviously, he can't. Uh, Sorkor can't really hear him. But he's, he wants to ready the crew to have a boarding party because he sees the Vivacia is about to go down. And we see here another hint that even though Sorkor is an excellent, excellent sailor, Kennet has a better grasp of things in general and a better, bigger picture because he sees that's going to be the need. Right. So, uh, and he doesn't say a, a boarding party of raiders. He says a boarding party of good seamen. So... People who can sail because yes. <laughs> he needs the, the ship to be saved. Right. Each jarring motion felt as if he'd plunged his stump into boiling oil. Suddenly he was shaking cold as well. The waves were running taller. And uh, as each wave broke, he saw the salt water rushing towards him and could do nothing save clutch tighter to the rail. Eventually one swept his tired leg out from under him. And then Etta had him carelessly seizing hold of him with no mind for his injured leg at all. She wrapped one of his arms around her shoulders and hoisted him up, gripping him around the chest. Let me take you inside, she begged him. No, help me get back to the wheel. I'll take the helm. I want Sorkor to lead the boarding party himself. You can't board another ship in this weather. Just take me aft. Kenneth, you should not even be out on the deck tonight. I can feel your fever burning you up. Please. His rage was instantaneous. Do you completely discount me as a man? My live ship is out there, her capture is imminent, and you wish me to go lie down in my cabin like an invalid? Damn you, woman, either help me to the helm or get out of my way. So she helps him over, and uh, he has the audacity to, like, complain in his head. Like, she didn't even apologize when my leg banged against things. Right, like, she, this little <laughs> tiny woman, who he has said is much smaller than him, and is he's, like, double the size of, is carrying all of his weight up a ladder to get him up where he needs to be to steer. And he's like, she's not being very gentle with me. And in the middle of a storm. <laughs> the fact that she can even lift his weight is amazing. And she's doing all this on her own yeah. in a storm. Like he should be worshiping the ground she walks on. And yet here he is like, well, she banged my bad leg against something and it hurt. She didn't apologize. What leg? <laughs> <laughs> True. No, it's. Ugh. Oh, can it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. he finally gets to the helm. Sorkor, of course, looks very surprised that he's there at all. And Kenneth replete, repeats his orders saying, you know, prepare a boarding party as many sailors as raiders. We need to overtake her swiftly before she gets too far into Hosser Channel. 
and they ahead of them they can see that she was heading west of Crooked Island. Sorcor shakes his head. There's no catching up with her the way she's sailing, and even if we had crew to spare, we couldn't board her in this storm. Give her up, sir. There'll be another one along. Let that one go to her fate. I am her fate, Kent roared back at him. A vast anger rose in him. All the world and everyone in it opposed him in his quest. I'll take the wheel. I know that channel. I took us through there before. You work with the crew to put on a bit of sail so we can catch her up. Help me but overtake her and try to run her onto the shoals. And if nothing is to be done, then I'll give her up. They heard her cry out again, a long, drawn-out scream of despair, haunting in its eeriness. The sound hung long in the air. Oh, Etta exclaimed suddenly with a shudder as it finally died away. Someone save her. The words were almost a prayer. And she looks from one man to the other, saying, I'm strong enough to hold the wheel. If Kenneth stands behind me and guides my hands, we can keep the Marietta on course. Done, Sorcor replied so promptly that Kenneth instantly realized that had been the man's true objection all along. He didn't think Kenneth could stand on one leg and still handle the ship's wheel. Grudgingly, he admitted Sorcor was probably right. Exactly, he said, as if that had been his intent all along. So they make an awkward transfer to the wheel, with Kenneth wrapped around Etta and Etta's hands on the wheel. But yeah, this is a, a very similar storyline and plot point to the Kyle situation, where Kyle cannot admit anything that he's doing is wrong, and basically oh, this is what you meant, I'll go along with that because I can't look weak. Right. And I think it's really interesting that Etta does step up. She was against this before, but hearing the live ship scream really did something to her that really made her decide, you know what, actually we should help. And I, I wonder if it was just hearing that the woman's scream, hearing that far away, Maybe. hearing that terror. And we know that the terror is probably from the death happening on the deck combined with nobody steering her so she could die and the serpents all around her. I'm sure the serpents are enjoying all the death and the fighting. They're probably touching her and she doesn't do well with that. So I think what's going on. Yeah. It's not a good time. (laughs) So Etta grasps the ship's wheel and says, just tell me what to do. And he says, hold it steady. I'll tell you when you need to do anything else. And Kenneth is focused on the ship, and that's it. But we switch over to Etta's point of view then. Right. And to say how they're standing, Kenneth stood behind Etta with one hand on the wheel to aid her and clasped her with with his other arm to keep his balance. Yeah, so I believe it's uh, his left hand, as described in the next section, his left hand is wrapped around her and grabbing onto her left shoulder. Or his, her right her, shoulder. Her right then. shoulder, whatever it is. Or it's his right arm wrapping around and grabbing on her left shoulder. But it's wrapping around the front to keep balance and keep him locked behind like a backpack. Yeah. <laughs> But either way, we go to Etta's point of view and we find out that his charm is right in her ear. Not that she knows that. Oh, his right arm wrapped around her, his hand gripping her left shoulder. Yes. So that's the one that his charm is on. And that's important to detail because the charm does talk to her later. Which means Kenneth is left handed. Canonically. Possibly. The 
hand that he's using to keep control of steering the ship with Etta is his left hand. Or does he think it's more important to keep his balance and not fall? So he's using his right hand, which is stronger. Hmm. I, don't I think know. it's hard to tell from this scene. I think he's left-handed. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not left-handed. It doesn't matter, but I thought that would be fun, a fun thing to know about him. <laughs> so still, she says she was frightened. And even though she's glad of Kenneth being kind of not a burden, but a shelter from the wind and rain, she's frightened still. Because why had she ever said she would do this? She doesn't know anything about this. She's gripping the wheel insanely tightly. She's setting her arms stiff to oppose any movement the ship might make. All around here, there was only darkness and driving rain and rushing wind and water. Up ahead, she could suddenly see flashes of silver-white water as waves dashed against barnacled rocks. She could not tell what she was doing. She could steer the ship directly into a rock and never know until they struck. She could kill them all, every man aboard. Then, Kenneth's voice spoke softly by her left ear. Despite the storm, he did not shout. His low voice was little more than a whisper. It's easy, really. Lift your eyes, look ahead. Now feel the ship through the wheel. There. Loosen your hands. You will never be able to react if you throttle the wood so. There. Now you can feel her. She speaks to you, does she not? Who is this, she wonders? Who is this light new touch on the helm? So hold her steady and reassure her. Now then... Now then, ease her over a bit, just a bit, not too much, and hold her steady there. It was his lover's voice he spoke with, small and breathless, warm with encouragement. She had never felt closer to him than now, sharing his love of the ship that he guided through the storm. Never had she felt stronger as she clasped the wooden spokes of the wheel and held the Marietta's nose into the waves. Aloft she could hear Sorcor calling to his deckhands. She suddenly found herself resolved to understand the incomprehensible pattern that they were reefing in the sails with. For she could understand it, and she could do it. That was what Kenneth's arm around her, his weight against her back, and his soft voice in her ear were telling her. She squinted against the driving rain, and the cold and the wet were simply part of this. Not unpleasant, but just not something to fear or avoid for their own sakes. They were just a part of her life now, a life that was carrying her forward as swiftly as the current carried the ship, shaping her every day into a new person, a person she could respect. I think that part makes me so sad for Etta. Yeah. Because she, she hated herself before this. She hated what her life was. Yeah. And that was really one of the only options for her yeah. in this life. And it's so sad that this feeling of confidence, this feeling of changing into a person that she actually can respect is stemming from a deception almost. I guess I don't know if I can call it deception because the charm does truly love Etta. The charm cares about Etta, but what the charm is doing is making Etta more agreeable to Kenneth, more trapped in Kenneth's this relationship with Kenneth and feeling as though she needs to be with him. But at the same time, offering up the encouragement to truly learn because, because she feels that this is coming from Kenneth, she feels encouraged that this amazing captain, this amazing man thinks that I can do this and is giving me some advice and encouragement. And because Sorkor is alone, he's using his soft lover's voice, right? Like, right. Cause he doesn't want to be seen by the crew. That's fine. 
but he's telling me that this could be my life now. So yes, it's a deception. And I get that that's where you're coming from as well. It's just yeah. kind of, uh, it, the duality of it is so weird and off-putting, but also at the same time, like the duality is so very good. It's very of saw. Um, to be <laughs> <It's dual. a laughs> contradiction. Yes, one of his many great contradictions. Um, no, but there, I do feel really bad for her because, like, it's sad. Ultimately, to, it's good for her. It is good for her, but it's so sad to know that that is the place that she is coming from, and that somebody as horrible as Kenneth is enough to bring her out of that. Like, you know what I mean? Like how much would she have flourished under actual love and care and attention? Like Althea's dad being her father and letting her be on a ship. As much as I don't love how Efren did things, if Efren was there to take care of her and to train her up, not in a sexual way or whatever, just like in a fatherly way, how much better could she have gotten? Right. And we see a little bit in her thoughts in this too, of the same situation that, Wintrow and Vivacia are in of like, who am I? It's a little bit different because she had a previous person that she did not like, and she's trying to be a new person. But in this insight, we get, you know, the last few months or whatever on board ship with Kenneth is her trying to find her place. Like, what am I on board for? And she latched onto Kenneth to find that meaning in her life. And now she has something else through Kenneth still, but I can, I can enjoy and respect this new person I could become. So we see kind of the start of Edda the Pirate Queen here. Yeah, and I think it's really admirable that she is kind of by herself encouraging herself. She isn't saying, oh, I don't know this, I'm useless. And at first, sure, she's really nervous that she's going to kill everybody. But after she gets over that, she's like, you know what? I can learn this. I can figure it out. I am going to be powerful and somebody who can be helpful because I am capable of it. And I think that's really cool. I think it's really cool to see her come into that realization. I just wish it wasn't attached to Kenneth. <laughs> right. And we're brought back to it being attached to Kenneth because she ends up saying, why can't it always be like this out loud? He feigned surprise and asked in a louder voice, what? You prefer the storm that sweeps us toward the damned rocks to easy sailing on peaceful waters? She laughed aloud, embraced by him and the storm and this new life he had plunged her into. Kenneth, you are the storm, she told him. In a quieter voice, she added to herself, and I prefer me as I am when I race before your winds. So yeah, we have kind of that tighter bond forming once again because of the charm. And the charm does it because he does care for them and hates how Kenneth treats them. Right. And I do, I do feel bad. I don't think Kenneth was an, enough in his right mind in this fever to be able to safely lead them. So I'm glad that the charm was able to step in and give her more direction. Right. Because I think, especially because the charm mentions like the way she was holding the ship is a detriment if something goes wrong and told her that she needed to move just a little bit out of the way. Kenneth wasn't doing any of that. So Obviously, he's too focused on what's going on with the live ship to actually be of help. And thanks to his luck, he is able to be fine. Right. Oh, man. Next chapter. Next chapter. Oh, yeah. It's getting real. Yep. Almost done with the book, too. Yeah. The end is nigh. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Please let us know your thoughts on the Edda and Kennet dynamic, on Gantry and his morality, and on Wintro and his dilemmas. And it's a lot of questions about morality this week, in this chapter, kind of posing thoughts about, you know, is it is it worth doing cruelty to make up for other cruelty? Right. It's... You know? All a very morally gray situation. Yeah. And please let us know also uh, what you guys know about Sa'adar, because I don't quite remember his history. I know he's a big player in the second book for a bit, but... Yeah, so thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any of those thoughts, please email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us, comment you know, directly, whatever, send any thoughts our way on our posts on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We really look forward to hearing what you guys have to say. 